But in case you think that this idea of a great reset is silly or it's not likely or possible or it's something new, let me just run through the great resets in history. Hello and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, please hide your servant behind the cross so that nothing would obscure the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be pleased with what you hear and what others may hear. I ask, dear Lord, that the gospel would be clearly articulated, that history would not be distorted. I pray, Lord, that our eyes and our heart and our mind and our soul would be receptive to what you have to say through this message. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message is episode number one in the podcast that they might know. title of this message is The Great Reset, and the series is Cultural Christianity. So to properly understand who we are as the Church of Jesus Christ and which way we should be headed is vital that we know where we've been and how we arrived at our present place. The Apostolic Church was led by fishermen, tax gatherer, might be called mafia, that would be Matthew, terrorists, and basically unlearned men. Our proof text for this is Acts 4.13, where it says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. End quote. The fact is, uneducated apostles is vital to be sure. So this, this, this idea that uh, it's necessary to be scholarly, to be used of God. I'm not saying that no scholar, sh- there should be no such thing as a scholar or someone who's highly in- intellectual. I'm certainly not saying that the scripture shouldn't be studied. What I'm I'm saying is I think we should just take a step back sometimes. We need to. And and take a look at where we've been and how we got here. That's all I'm starting to say right now. And I, I just would appreciate it if the hearers would just have an open mind. Because I know things are hard. They've been hard for me all my life. You know, trying to make transitions as we're told to do in Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That renewing there has a lot of implications involved in it, an application. The application is it's not going to be what it once was. It's going to be transformed into something else, like going from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's uh, taking on a new uh, thought, new way of looking, new perspectives 
all of these things in the transformation process. And, and it's difficult, particularly when we get locked in to something as if this is it and it can't be anything else. So some have considered the education of Paul as so important as to almost entirely negate the ministries of the eleven. Biblically speaking, to relegate the ministries of the eleven apostles as insignificant, insignificant is a great mistake, particularly when we consider Paul's credentials. And first of all, this is what Paul says about himself. If anyone else thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Now there's the, the confidence here is in the flesh. What was his reasons? Well, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Of course, that's in his own eyes. You know, he, everything he knew to do, see, here's the, the first perspective that he had. I mean, all of these things. This is what made him who he was. And, you know, in his lost condition, in his own eyes, he was blameless and he was everything he needed to be because he was an Israelite, because of the, the people group that he was attached to which God separated, and we'll talk about that later, but he was a Jew. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Now comes the transition. There's Paul in the flesh, and now there's Paul in the new man in the spirit. But, big, huge, B-U-T, but, whatever things were gain to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish in Greek, cow dung, so that I may gain Christ. And then he concludes later with through faith in Christ. That's Philippians 3, 7 and 8 in that I may gain Christ. He counted everything as cow dung, manure. Okay? Now that's everything. So that includes education. That includes all that his mind had perceived, thought, understood, all garbage. So when I say, let's try to have an open mind, I'm, I'm saying that in light of the, of the fact that our minds get cluttered with things that are less than what God wants. Let's just start there. That's why Romans 12. So as we, as we consider these things, this is the direction I want to take us, and then with specific uh, application to the Great Reset, which I'm going to explain. All of our confidence should be in Christ by faith alone. All confidence should be in Christ. Let us be clear with regards to learning. We are clearly instructed in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This goes out to every Christian who's been saved by the blood 
the death and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. There's no, no people like, oh yeah, that doesn't apply to me. Oh, oh yeah, that's, that's just for apostles. That's just for teachers. That's just for pastors. Let's, let's start to think differently, if we can, that this is for everyone who has benefited from the salvation that comes in Christ alone. We're responsible to be diligent. I understand that some people have huge responsibilities and that that responsibility takes time. I'm not trying to put any unnecessary guilt on people. At the same time, as God would lead and and as opportunity would create and as we would create uh, in making time, that we are still responsible to be diligent as we can be, as God would require. Not me, not you, but as God would require. Beyond our understanding of the Word of God, anything and everything else can be a plus uh, or a minus. Uh, that is a, deter- a detriment. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 1, Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates. Knowledge inflates in the Greek. Uh, that is with pride. But love builds up. It edifies. It builds up people. So love builds up, but knowledge inflates our heads with pride. In some translations, it puffs up. It, it just makes our heads big. Um, this is bad. So with that in view, and I think this is a really important verse for us, because we are very educated in the West, and, 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 and education, it, it has a, something that's a warning. This is a warning to us. Because the last thing that a Christian needs, certainly a leader, is to be proud. I mean, we're, we're told that an elder shouldn't be uh, a novice unless they be um, built up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's a fairly significant warning. That's why the early church took so long you know, to first to fully receive a person into membership after having come to Christ, not a long-term Christian. We're talking come to Christ. It'd be at least three years before they would become a full member. Why? Because they would be watched to see under testing and, and in the world. You know, you take the, the parable of the sower of the seeds and how, you know, different seeds get plucked up by uh, birds all the way to growing up the vine and you know, the branches and all, but, but there's no fruit, you know. So there's, there's that, t- that period of time. And then before becoming an elder, it'd be even years after that, bef- you know, so that a person could be seated, they, they know how to disciple and they understand the scriptures and they, you know, but within that certain amount of time, people would be expected to be responsible to these things, to be responsible for learning uh, without pride. So pl- placing our identity in the flesh, as Paul was making clear in Philippians, it's worthless. Uh, and so place, the first foundation stone of the apostolic church is putting being spirit-filled. Disassociation from the world is the second foundation stone of the apostolic church. As found in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. And these, only these two stones I'm going to concentrate on in this message, there are others. But in this passage in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 17, it said, do not be bound together with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And this is from Old Testament. And will be their God, he's quoting, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Paul quotes from Exodus 29, 45, and Isaiah 52, 11, in those verses, in this verse. And so he's making it clear that there has to be separation. If the one thing that's lacking in the church in the West, in America, is, uh, and I'm certain in other parts of the world, a lack of proper separation. People are welcomed into the fellowship, and they're not in. And that has numerous bad qualities attached to it. What, not qualities, but elements. And what are those elements? Number one, person who's not in the kingdom is not going to behave and think and talk totally like a Christian should. And that gets seen and sometimes they act very badly. And that, that's a detriment to the name of Christ and to the gospel. Number two, it corrupts the church from within. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And number three, it helps to lead people to hell when they think they're going to heaven. I mean, just all you need is those three. And so we're, we're called to separation in the church, proper in love, with patience, with kindness. All of those qualities have to be there, but separation is the same. Old Testament and New Testament are in perfect harmony concerning the pr principle of separation. From idol worshipers and false religions, they have no part and that's why Israel was supposed to be separate. That's why they were given laws regarding how they ate and, and all of that. For more than 1,200 years, Israel disregarded the principle of separation. They intermarried with the surrounding nations, worshipped their idols, and desired a king like the surrounding nations. And they, they, to the point that they, they got worse than the surrounding nations that were around them until they were dispersed by God, who sent them into captivity, where they learned there is but one God. And that happened in the formation of the synagogues and in the teaching and understanding that under that heavy weight of chastisement, being slaves and being mistreated and all of that, that they had erred in idolatry. This is all their sins that they committed make no mistake, came out of pride. Pride is the root sin of all sins. And that brings us to this idea of the Great Reset. There have been a number of Great Resets in human history, in case you, you think it's impossible. And I'm using that term of the Great Reset because people are using it today, and it's something that's on people's minds. But in case you think that this idea of a great reset is silly or it's not likely or possible or it's something new, let me just run through the great resets in history. Number one, man is made, and when he's made, it says he's, he's very good. I mean, everything God says that he made, beginning with light right down through the animals, is good. When it comes to man, it's very good. Man is made in the image of God. He's meant to be at the pinnacle of God's creation. 
At that time that he was created, he was lower than the angels, and he still is, but not meant to stay in that position. Then came the first great reset, the fall in the garden, where God curses and brings judgment upon the serpent that was indwelt by the, 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 the devil, and judgment upon Adam, which led to the cursing of the earth, and judgment upon Eve. Then comes the great deluge, or the flood that destroyed the earth, which had been through, going through a period of grace and had not really been altered or changed under that curse severely uh, for 1,440 years. And God watched and men lived for hundreds of years and sin abounded. And we know how hard people get in a, a lifetime of 70, 80 years maybe and, and how and they can be. Some people become sweet. Some people are, are saved. Some people are sweet in personality but still under the judgment of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. But the great deluge comes and totally changes the earth into where it is now. There's seasons and there's rain and there's snow and there's, it's, it's, it's a planet that's it's hard to live. I mean, you have to survive and we do all kinds of things to make things easier and better, but it's survival, make no mistake, on this planet because it's cursed. That was first, second great reset. Both of those, both the, the garden, the fall, and the flood are judgments. Then comes a great reset, which is a blessing, in which there are only Gentiles, all nations of the world, and then God picks one man to which to start a new nation, and that's Abraham. And that was meant to be a blessing, because through Abraham and through his descendants, which is the nation of Israel, there would be the blessing of a host of things. Number one, covenants, where God, who is Elohim, He's strong, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping trinity, three in one, all in that name Elohim. There is this covenant-keeping God, and he makes covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David, and the covenants are promises of God. I'm going to do this thing and, and bring it to fruition. So there's the covenants and the promises, and there's the law that was given through Moses and the prophets bringing condemnation and warnings and blessings that would come to those who are people of faith. The Holy Scriptures that were brought about and written and inspired by God so that we know what God's will is and what God's blessing is and what God's curses are if we read and if we pray and if we're brought into the kingdom through the gospel. And most of all, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, came through Abraham and that nation. The church uh, that replaced Israel was another reset because God is once working through Israel and then he starts to work through the church because Israel rejected Christ and God brought chastening. There was always a remnant and God then sets Israel aside as the main uh, way in which he will bring the blessing and goes to all nations, which is both, this one is both a curse and a blessing. Because on the one hand, it's a curse to Israel, but it's a blessing to all the nations. And you can read all about that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
Now, before we get to the great reset that I'm going to talk about today, there is a, another two that are coming. One is the final reset yet to come at the return of Christ after the tribulation period of seven years in which God destroys, changes, alters the earth as it now is, pummels it into uh, a new earth in which Christ will be able to reign as they did before the flood. And there will be people living for uh, hundreds of years again, and there will be prosperity, and all the rulers of the world will be saved, Christians, and men will live the way they are called to live, or they will be judged severely. And God, will, Christ will reign with a rod of iron. But it will be a time of great blessing, and many people will be saved. And then the end of that kingdom... There will be one final reset, and by the way, there's seven uh, in the way I'm listing these, all except this idea that I'm talking about today is biblically accurate, even though the one I'm talking about today is, uh, can be seen in a light of the Bible and definitely in history. But then there's the, the great white throne judgment in which the old heavens and earth are done away, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth, and that's definitely a reset. These are all definitely biblical resets. But the one I want to talk about today, um, the one uh, which is happened in history, uh, and I want to understand it, I'm going to go through it. There's 27 books in the New Testament, uh, was first formally canonized I'm sorry, during the Council of Hippo in 393 A.D., and Carthage in 397 in North Africa. Pope Innocent I ratified the same canon in 405, but it's probable that the council in Rome in 382 under Pope um, Damasus I gave the, the same list first. Anyway, that being just a fact in history, there, there is this, uh, this idea of the scriptures being brought together and um, and and which was accomplished through the church. However, we need to understand that in the beginning, and and there is a difference between Israel and the church in this matter, because Israel was reprobate, if we want to use that word, lost from the beginning. I mean, they were brought out of Egypt. They were they were saved in a sense, being brought through the Red Sea. But right from the beginning, they were, they were lost. There was no real salvation that took place. And we can tell because in, in the first 40 years, that whole entire generation died out and, and explained in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, you know, there's this idea that God hated those people as he hates sin and sinful people. He loves everyone in the sense that he would have all come to Christ. His heart is a, is a heart of love, but it's equally a heart of righteousness and justice. And they rejected the, the, the gospel that they knew through Moses, that good news that they could be saved through the blood and through the sacrifice. And there were those who were saved. There's Moses and Miriam and people and Joshua and Caleb. And there were certainly those, but as a very small remnant, but as a whole, the nation was, was lost in the first generation and continuing. In... Uh, the church, you have Pentecost, a day when miracles took place through the apostles where this transfer was made known and the gospel went out to all Gentile nations. As we just said, Israel was rejected. 
But again, when, once re, uh, Pentecost ended, once the church began to normalize, so to speak, people continued to witness and be scattered, but the church began to develop the kind of problems which come about through the presence of demonic influence, which we read about in Ephesians chapter 6, starting right from the beginning to try to corrupt things. And, and instead of going to a pure, holy, small church, because the way is narrow that leads to salvation, eternal life, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, God, the devil started to corrupt things. So, that, so much so that by 250 AD, less than 10% of confessing Christians were orthodox according to biblical doctrine. I mean, the things that they were believing was less than what a Christian would believe. Constantine further wrecked the authentic Christianity by decreeing that his whole entire kingdom was Christian just by, by fiat, so to speak, just by his, 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 uh, his statement. You know, this is, the, 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 this is everybody's Christian. You know, like, that didn't happen. But then further on in the 1800s under Charlemagne, the church by that time was so corrupted that he wanted to bring some civility to his church, quote-unquote, church leaders. And in, in, in doing this, um, he instituted what we now know as seminaries. He wanted them educated in the Bible. And so the education of the Bible began by the state. And understand that and hear that. Seminaries were an institution of the state under Charlemagne in history. You can look that up fairly easily. And so what was the problem there? Well, much of Charlemagne's thoughts came from St. Augustine, who taught that government should be subject to the dictates of the Holy Scriptures. Now, that's a good thing. If, if governments were subject to the Scriptures, it would make life better on earth. And we can see that in this great experience we've had uh, called America, you know, where that's been the case. And certainly in history before America, in Britain, there's this element in Germany you know, through the Reformation. But the great reset of which I speak, therefore, is educating leaders in the church according to the dictates of the state. Now people say, well, that doesn't happen in seminaries. Well, it does. There are good seminaries and there are not so good seminaries and there are horrible seminaries. And I'm not going to go into all history what happened back in the 1800s and, you know, with higher criticism and all of that. But the state has its hand. And in other ways, there are, there are seminaries today that are good or start good, but then in order for funds and to make things work and, then, and to hit the requirements that they need to be state-certified, bad things happen. And there's compromise. Compromise is the, the big sin, the big C word, which is the most sinful, which is compromise with the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, wanting to do away with the institution of the seminary is crazy. You have to have it. Well, um, the church that didn't compromise at all at Pentecost was made up of 12 men, one educated who counted his education as dung, and the other 11 who were uneducated men. Necessary to be educated by the standards of the state? Yeah, I don't think so. But the rest of the church has compromised to the point that it's only un, almost it's unrecognizable. The most significant qualification for any leader in the church, in the Christian church, is that they be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Our proof text is Acts chapter 2 and verses 6, Acts chapter 6, verses 2 to 4. It is, quote, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Instead, my brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So according to the apostles, uh, in a uni uni united uh, word to the people of that day, they wanted servants, deacons, not elders, they wanted servants, deacons, who were going to be serving the table. He wanted them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he wanted them to have wisdom from God, and he wanted them to have a good reputation. That's what's necessary in the most basic form for leadership in the church. The, apostle was, the apostles were not in any way demeaning, in any way, men who serve tables, men who serve as deacons. In fact, he was elevating all service in the church so that anyone in the church serving and all members are called to serve in one of any number of ways as they are led by the Spirit of God. They are called to serve, but all are called to serve and they are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just a quick word because I do not have time to explain what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God only takes up residence in a repentant sinner who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Basic. That's the entrance in the door. The fullness of God in a person that is walking in humility and consistently being emptied of sin by repentance. James tells us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. People being filled, as in Ephesians 5.18 be not drunk with wine, which is excess, worldly, but be filled with the Spirit, commands, these commands are constantly to be emptied of pride through their awareness of sin. Either being tempted and not sinning, being tempted and turning from it, seeing, seeing the temptation and even the draw from within, and going from that state to being filled with the Holy Spirit. These people are to be servants in the church, and eventually uh, to be disciple makers in one way or another. With that understanding of the qualifications for leadership, uh, we will take a look at the transformation of the disciples of Jesus Christ into apostles of the early church. So let me make this statement in beginning. The disciples who walked with Jesus for three years, were sent out on different occasions to preach. They were given power over demons, also to heal people of diseases. And as such, the disciples, as they were before Pentecost, were substandard disciples. Let me explain. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 to 21, it says, quote, Now when... Evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they began saying to him, Each one, Surely it is not I, Lord. Matthew 26, 20-22 Surely 
it is not I, Lord. Now, maybe they said that. I don't know the intent of their hearts. No one does. But maybe they said that because they were concerned it was them. Maybe they said that because it was hard to believe that they would do such a thing. I mean, Peter did say, well, all will forsake you, but I will not. Touch at least of pride in that statement. Then in Mark chapter 14, 27 and 31, it says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. So they're all going to fall away. One would betray. And then in, in verse 37, And he came and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? And this he did three times. Three times they fell asleep. He asked them to watch for three hours, and it was just too much. They couldn't do it at all. Then we go on to Luke chapter 22, 20 to 23, and it says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for me, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it was determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to debate among themselves which one of them it was who was going to do this. Get the picture. They've eaten. Jesus begins to comfort them in that upper room knowing that he's going to be taken away and killed, knowing what they're going to go through. He doesn't want them to stumble and fall. He prays for Peter that his his faith would be stabilized. And in that midst where they're, they're painfully aware and it's been made to them known for months and months now that Jesus is going to be taken away, crucified. He's going to rise on the third day. He's been telling them this. He tells them that one is going to betray him and they're all going to fall away. And they're debating about the betrayal, like who would do this thing? They're they're talking about it. And then in Luke, unbelievable passage, verse chapter 22, 24 to 27, and a dispute also developed, also on top of this, out of this, among them as to which one of them was regarded as being the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way for you. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not one who reclines at the table but I am among you as one who serves. He was a servant the whole three years. He was a servant to them in many ways. He, he, he cast disease out. He cast out demons. And all of this was service. He had said this to them before. Matthew 24, it's, he's out among the crowds. Now he's in the upper room. He's going to tell them again. Why? Because they're concerned about a betrayer. And then they start discussing who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's hard to to wrap our minds around this. Jesus is going to his death. They're minutes, literally, from Gethsemane. He's going to be sweating blood. They're in the upper room. Now, in this setting, where they're, they're discussing who's the greatest, and he has to say this to them, 
He, he gets up, he takes his cloak off, he wraps himself with a towel, and he begins to wash their feet. Where are the heads of these 12 men? One we know is lost. He's never been saved. He just attached himself to Christ. He goes out and hangs himself. He, he commits suicide. He's, he's a lost person. If you want to hear about that, you want to hear it in detail, listen to John MacArthur uh, preaching on Judas, and you can get that uh, on his website. Well, then we read in, in John 13, and I want to read it. And during supper, got up from supper, and laid out outer garment aside, took a towel, tied it around himself, and then he poured water into a basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel which he had tied around himself. Then, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are correct, for so I am. Yeah, he's the great I am. So if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's telling them what a leader looks like in the church. For I gave you an example that you also would do just as I did for you. I don't want to bring any divisions or harsh things among people, but you know what I do want to say to leaders out there and the people who are sitting under leaders, are your leaders people who readily would wash your feet? Are they people who express that, and they don't have to literally wash your feet, but are they expressing that in their attitude, in their demeanor, in, their, in how they talk to people, in, in who they are? We're all, we're all imperfect, and we all do and say things that would contradict that. I, I'm talking about as a, as a way of, you know, a, 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 as a way of, of expressing who we are. Is that who leaders are today? Now let us understand that the apostles were called to a very, very high calling and how they were to live their lives as we just expressed through Jesus' teaching to them. But we need to understand that there was a great apostolic reset. I'm not counting this as a, as a great reset, you know, in the seven that I mentioned, but this one was for the apostles because they went from proud, dare I say, egotistical maniacs wanting to be greatest in the kingdom, which was definitely in their minds, and arguing for months and months and months, and at the Lord's Supper, and then, you know, there came a change. What, what made the change? I, I want, let's, let's understand something. There were 12 men in human history, and, and one with other people around them, but 12 who Jesus called to himself and kept with him all the time. And those men are, are the 12 apostles. Those 12 were called to be by his side. Those 12, and those 12 are the ones who denied him. Those 12 and, and not much, I don't think I've heard many sermons in the last 50 years that make really much of that. You know, well, they denied him. Okay, Peter denied him. You know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I, I think it's a big deal. Not like it's the unpardonable sin. I think it was meant to do something in them that is meant to be done 
in anyone who would be a leader. And if that thing is not done, be better off not to be a leader. Now, I'm not magnifying leadership in the church as though no one should do it. Just the opposite. We're all responsible to understand what the disciples came to, except we weren't there. I mean, no one was actually there. No one saw Jesus' expressions that's living today or for the last 2,000 years, except for these men. Saw what he went through, saw the sufferings, and denied him in the midst of it. It had a traumatic effect, so much so with the Apostle Peter that it says he went out and wept, and the word is in the Greek, bitterly, violently, violently. And I, I give this in, my, in the book I wrote. You know, uh, the Jesus you need to know, this, I'm, I hear this screech and this bang, and I run out down the block and I see this woman, and she's dead, and she's an older woman because this guy, young kid, was speeding with his car and struck and killed her. And her mother comes out of the house, and she, she runs off the stoop, and she, I mean, it was a violent cry. I mean, I have it still in my mind to this day. You killed my mother. I mean, it was an awful scene. That was the cry of Peter when he lost the dearest person who would ever live, the eternal God in human form taken from him in the midst of his denial. That did something to Peter. It did something, it did something so much so, and and all the twelve, it did something to the point that it, it transformed him from a really proud, proud seeking person to a humble seeking person. So in the early church, before Pentecost, something takes place. Before we read that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, you know, before that took place, as in Acts chapter 2, 42, before that started to develop, we read in Acts chapter 1, 20 to 26, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his residence be made desolate and may there be none living in it and may another take his office. And that's talking about Judas. Therefore, it's necessary, Peter standing up and saying this, that of the men who have accompanied us uh, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So says Peter, quoting this scripture, that there must be a replacement. Now we talk about it's not good to get ahead of the Lord. This is prior to Pentecost, and Peter getting ahead of the Lord. So they put forward two men. Okay, we got a choice. we got these two. I guess there was only two. I don't know if there was only two, but they put forth two. Joseph called Barsabbas, and who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, and they had been praying, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots from the law. That's what you do, draw lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So now they got back to 12. The only problem with this is, well, for one thing, 
in history, uh, from Revelation 21.14, there's still only 12 apostles because it says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, this meaning the New Jerusalem, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What happened to Paul? I mean, all his scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit that he wrote, scripture begins with uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, some argue that Peter did the right thing and he was an apostle, but there's not 13 apostles. There's only 12 foundation stones. More than that, Jesus told them in Luke chapter 22, 28 to 30, uh, quote, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. 12. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we might, one might say, well, but Judah, uh, Paul wasn't with him in his trials, but Peter said, that he made up for what was lacking in Jesus' suffering. And he certainly didn't mean what he did on the cross. What he meant was he bare in his body the marks of Jesus Christ's suffering in bringing the gospel. He, a supreme example of one among 11 of the disciples who were martyred for the faith, and many martyrs, but 12 apostles. And he was definitely one who shared in the sufferings of Christ and in Christ's trials. When he's persecuting the church, what does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? The church was being persecuted, but there's a unity with that. And it's that unity that I'm referring to here that Paul, as an apostle, shared in the trials of Christ. Something else takes place to show forth Peter's humility. And in Peter's humility, much like we see in Paul's humility, who gave away everything to gain Christ, we find in Galatians chapter 2 and 11 to 14, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now this is the younger, the younger Paul from convert, transformed from Saul, who is a Pharisee, uh, who's now going to Cephas, one of the 12, or one of the 11, and he's going to him and he's rebuking him. And he says, For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, meaning Peter. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, now he's rebuking this guy in everybody's presence, because of course everyone was being carried away with this. If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is something that we do in the church today, and it's, ah, what did you do? I mean, you're not being nice. But Paul did this and became scripture. And it's an example of just how rebuke takes place. And by the way, Timothy tells us it was supposed to re rebuke, you know, in the presence of two or three witnesses. Uh, but rebuke, rebuke before all. 
So if a man is an elder, he's to rebuke before all. Why? Because he's an elder and he's got responsibility in the church for people. So then later on, after Peter is rebuked and he's writing his letters, this is how he speaks about the Apostle Paul. There wasn't a rift between the two of them. There wasn't this anxiety and this strain and this, this problem because when Paul rebuked Peter, Peter took it, rightfully so. Peter didn't turn around and blame Paul for anything. Peter understood that what Paul was saying was the truth and he humbled himself. He didn't rebuke, there's nowhere where it says he rebuked Paul. But Peter says this about Paul. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do all the rest of the scriptures. So Paul is beloved, and Peter recognizing, recognizes that Paul is writing scripture, and he commends him for it. He recognizes him for it. No problem. No problem in the early church with accountability and with rebukes even, in public. I mean, I have rebuked people in private, and they didn't take it very well. Imagine had I done it in public. Today's church is not a church that takes rebukes well, which speaks about the lack of humility in the church. All believers have responsibility to be responsible in one way or another. In Acts chapter 2, 43 to 47, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. By the way, In the New Testament, it makes real clear reference to apostolic gifts. I know people want to hear this, and I'm not trying to cause a rift between me right now and Pentecostal people. I'm just pointing out something, like Pentecostals point out all the time, their things, that there's, there's, and I hate division. I hate division. I'm saying this against division. Everyone kept feeling in awe. It doesn't say everyone was doing signs and wonders. It said many wonders, many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Signs of an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12. There are signs of an apostle. Apostles were men set aside. They're going to be sitting on 12 thrones. There's not thousands of thrones. There's 12 over the 12 tribes of Israel. And those are by these 12 men. But at the same time, we all have responsibility to live because of the sufferings of Christ and to find our place, not to sit in the seat of an apostle. And all the believers were together and all things in common. And by the way, gifts are given out today, and there's categories of gifts, but every person is specific. We're stones, living stones, and everyone has his own size and shape and color and all of that. And each one has his own designs, especially gifts for him. And it may be a, a prophecy gift, but that prophecy gift is going to come out in the ways of, of that person. Verse 45, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. Some are going to run to me or they're going to say about tongues. Before we, I'm not going to approach that right now. But the person needs to understand the purpose of tongues from Isaiah and, 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 and 1 Corinthians 14, where he's quoting about the use of tongues in referring to the Jews that they are being rejected. Very overlooked. Very overlooked. That that, that was a sign that they were going to the Gentiles. When you get that straight, when you understand those quotes and you understand the rejection of Israel, and we're now at the, I believe, at the end of the church age, when the rapture, when the, uh, yeah, the tribulation is going to take place and the millennial kingdom is coming and the Jews will be restored, the idea of telling the Jews that they are going to be rejected is really not very sound biblically. And that was the use for the speaking in languages to them, the many languages. And then going on also in, uh, in Acts chapter 4, we are, we are told this, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Look, this is the main evidence. Unity. Putting aside the things that are not thoroughly biblical and laying them aside in order to be unified. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him or her. This was not a culture of possessions. This was a culture of love for one another. Nobody could have need and it didn't matter if they were going to take maybe an extra house that they had and sell it and give that money to the apostles so it could be to the poor so that people would understand that Christians loved one another. And that happens in the church. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying it, it was abundant at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And what the abundance was was boldness with the gospel and a giving spirit and a spirit of unity. These things came before all others. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them. All there was, for there was not a needy person among them. So that power was going out, and people were receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. What? To be loving. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed. And this was not a very rich society like we are today in America. To each the extent that any had need. Understand how this goes to all people. The announcement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen. This is in chapter 6. A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit becomes the first martyr who is a deacon and a servant, not a leader, a servant in the church. But he was a man of faith. And in a sense, he was a leader. And no doubt had he been allowed to live, he would have been a distinguished leader. The word of God kept spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Why? Not just by the apostles, but the word was going out by all the people. And this is shown in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Get that? Except for the apostles. So there's a scattering. Why except? Because God wants us to know who these people were. And in verse 4, he tells us, therefore, those who had been scattered went through place 
places preaching the word. (laughs) See, if a church today gets scattered, the question would be, how much would that that church continue? Would it be a church of preachers? Or would it be a church of people like we can't function because there's no pastor right now? The early church was a church of preachers. They went out after being scattered preaching the word. They, they didn't have to, they didn't need a method to teach them like so many have come down, like in, in my day, evangelism explosion. They didn't have, need a method in order, how can we share the gospel with someone? They were so filled with the word, and all they had was the Old Testament, by the way. You know, they were so filled with the Spirit of God and the Word that they could share from Isaiah 53, for an example, the Jesus, the Christ, he's come. This is who he is because they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They prayed. They were a praying church. The house of God was a house of prayer in those days. Now, I want to just really quick, in the last few minutes, Understand the teacher mandate from James chapter 3, lest I sound like I'm saying everybody should be a preacher. Even though I just said everyone should be a preacher. In its context, in the context of the Bible, James tells us in 3.1, do not become teachers in large numbers. Do not be many teachers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. What's that mean? That does not mean that only a few are called to preach that only a few are called to teach. It does not say that. What it says, and then he goes on for the rest of the chapter, and you should go through that chapter, and I will be going through that chapter to talk about this fact. Why not be many teachers? Because you're not called, because it's only for a few, or because many don't live out their Christian lives well. I hate to say that. I mean, I'm not judging any particular person. And I have to be held accountable to God and to Jesus Christ and be at the beamer seat where we hand out rewards like everybody else. And we should all be introspective of who we are and we should test ourselves and see if we're in the faith. And we should be bringing up sin as much as we can be led by the Holy Spirit to look within ourselves or if other people talk to us. Why? Because otherwise, we make poor disciples. We make poor disciple makers. Or we don't do it at all. We just go through life like wondering like, gee, uh, you know, I wish I was better. Well, what's preventing anyone from studying the scriptures with the idea that they're going to teach someone else, that they're going to disciple someone else, that they're going to help someone else? But don't do it if you're like the disciples before Pentecost. Don't do it if you're living in sin. Don't do it if you're compromising every other day. And, and you're not living a life that's becoming to Christ. But if you are, and, and everyone should be, why? Because Jesus died for us all. All of us who have repented of sin and turned to Jesus Christ and call him Lord. There's, there's not less responsibility for a Peter with a very high and specific calling as an apostle and anyone else because you know what? This took the same sufferings of Christ to get it accomplished. So James 3 is not saying according to calling. That's not in the chapter. What he's saying is according to the life you're living. Be not many. Why? Because just the way Joshua and Moses predicted ahead of time, you know, this is going to be, you're going to be disobedient. You're going to fall away. You're going to, you know, you're going to sin and you're going to be idol worshipers and you're going to be lustful. And, and he's talking to those who wouldn't be saved. You know, he saw that, and, and in chapter 20, Paul does the same thing in Acts. 
You know, people are going to come in. False teachers are going to come in. Why is there so much division in the church? Because false teachers come in, and then even good men who desire the will of God, who desire to exalt Christ, get corrupted. Why? Seminary has something to do with it, especially when it's falling in line with the state or state mandates or all of that, and the idea of scholarship, which is not necessarily biblical knowledge of personal knowledge of Christ in prayer and in humility, like I've been talking about, but setting a standard and a bar which is highly intellectualism to the point that I have to have a, a seminary graduate say to me on a phone call, having warned him about seminary, and then he started to see it years later, and he said to me, you know, I hate to say this because I am one, but, you know, I'm beginning to hate seminary students. I shouldn't be laughing, but it's because it's so sad. It is so sad that men go to the high calling of wanting to be a shepherd and they become a king and they get their head so inflated with knowledge, not the good knowledge, not the epinosis, but just the gnosis. Epinosis is a personal encounter with Christ by which through the Holy Spirit he's imparting the humility of Christ by which every leader ought to lead. Instead, they're just getting their heads filled up and their pride and they sound like the disciples before Pentecost and who's the greatest and how many people do you have in your church? Blah, 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 and it's nauseating. And it, look, if I feel this way, and I am a sinful man, how must Jesus, how must Jesus feel about the conceit and the pride in the church in the West today? Dear Heavenly Father, it's an exhausting topic, and your word is, is full, and it's rich, and it, it exalts Jesus and not men. And it says to us, you know, after you've done everything you can do, just understand this, you are, you are just unprofitable servants. That's what Jesus said. Just unprofitable servants. That's all we have. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. Lord, we know this. But we fall and we err and we get built up with pride and we, we have issues with one another and it divides us and it's so hard to fix it so hard you can't talk to a person who won't listen and lord oftentimes we are people who just won't listen lord i pray send this message out with a voice of humility for all of us lord we're all guilty we just recognize like daniel in chapter nine he's just He's guilty. I mean, he's, he's a righteous man. He's a man of faith. And he's praying like the worst of sinners, you know, like the Puritans. I mean, they were just godly oaks in the Christian church. And they used to spend days confessing sin. Lord, may this generation, this church today, may it not be a cultural Christianity, but may it be a biblical, humble one. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.